Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. I'm your host, Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we are very lucky to have many jazz musicians and singers who have performed for most of their lives and some right into their 80s. It's always amazing to hear their stories, and in this show, we will hear from several legends from previously recorded interviews and live concert performances. We will learn about their start in the jazz scene, their high points and challenges, and finally, their continued passion for this art form. Our musical guests are familiar to many, and we hope by the end of this broadcast, you will know them even better. I invite you to sit back and listen to our Minnesota jazz legends, George Avalos, Dean Brewington, Betty Palmer, Steve Blondes, Carrie Thomas, Bill Evans, and Charlie DeVore. The featured musicians for the jazz legends are backed by the house band, Phil Aaron on piano, Gary Rayner on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. This show is brought to you by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and KBEM. Our first Minnesota jazz legend is saxophonist Dean Brewington, who joined us for the live jazz legends concert at the Minnesota History Center. Dean grew up playing music in the Bronx, living near many jazz greats and receiving inspiration from them. During his life in Minnesota, he has led his own band called DBQ or the Dean Brewington Quartet. And he's also been a print ad model, commercial actor, and even landed a role in a movie. Here's Dean Brewington. Welcome to the stage, Mr. Dean Brewington on sax, everybody. We uh, had such a good time together the other day, hanging out in the jazz station. You're from the Bronx, and you got a love for music by listening to who? Well, ever hear of a saxophonist by the name of Louis Jordan and his timpani five? Yeah. Yeah. That was it. Um... It's had a special neighborhood that you grew up in. Very special. I, uh, I consider myself very fortunate. I lived in the Bronx, and in the neighborhood that I lived in were jazz stalwarts like Elmo Hope, Thelonious Monk, Curly Russell. I can go on. But all kinds of folks. Uh, Larry Gales and I went to the same high school. I grew up with a trumpeter named Oliver Beener, who any trumpet player today worth their salt, when you say Oliver Beener, they say, oh, you knew Oliver, you know. What high school? My high school was Morris High School in the Bronx. The time I was in high school, there was a fellow who wasn't a musician, but you might recognize his name, uh, Colin Powell. Yeah. That's so, pretty interesting. Yeah. And you had some gigs and you ended up here in the Twin Cities, but you got here when? I got out here in 1962. And who were you gigging with at the time? When I came here, I wasn't really playing with anybody. I was just like out there on the road doing whatever I could do to play wherever I could play with whomever I would play with. And I got here and ran into a trombone player named Bo Bailey. Bo and I hooked up started hanging out. We played around the city here with Eddie the Mole Bowen and, and uh, Buddy Davis, saxophone player by the name of Bobby Creer. Um, oh, man. So you were hanging out, you were playing, you were gigging. Did I also see Bobby Lyle was in your? Yeah, Bobby, yeah, Bobby Lyle was, I think uh, he was about 16 when I first came out here, blowing everybody away. He still is. Bobby is uh, an amazing 
amazing musician is. Yes. So, you know, you've had uh, opportunities to work some pretty incredible people and live and work right here in the Twin Cities. You've also had some groups, the one in particular, the Dean Brewington Quintet, DBQ? It was quartet or quintet, depending on the configuration at the time. Okay. People were in and out, yeah. Who were you gigging with then? Uh, let's see, there was Oliver, as I mentioned before. When I started my group, uh, okay, let me back up just, just quickly, you sure. know. Um, like a lot of jazz musicians, a lot of musicians, I don't want to just limit it to jazz, a lot of musicians got caught up into that drug world, and I was... Uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, got caught up in that. So I, I go to treatment. Fortunately, I was smart enough to hang on to some of the stuff they told me. So when I got out, people were saying, well, Dean, what are you going to do? Because, you know, you're going to be playing in those clubs and everything, and the people are going to be smoking weed and bad. What are you going to do? How are you going to play? And one guy, um, attempting to be facetious, suggested why don't you hire sober musicians? <laughs> Do what, you know? But I thought about it, and at a workshop, there was a guy that some of you may know named Gene Adams who came through here. Gene started doing workshops, and I was fortunate enough to hang out with Gene and be a part of those workshops. And um, one day a pianist came through, came in from California, by the name of Terry Hughes. And Terry was just getting into jazz. Prior to that, he was playing rock guitar and all that kind of stuff. But he played, he studied and played piano, and he wanted to play jazz. He was sober. We got together, started a little group. And I had my daughter, Aisha Brewington, playing drums, who was still playing, by the way. She's living out in California now and, and doing pretty well. Had a bassist named Robin Desjardins. And Bill Grinke played bass. And Larry Sims. That was actually my first incarnation of the DBQ quartet. Would you do some playing for us today? I'd love to. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. Dean Brewington. Thank you. in the Twin Cities. Were you born oh, here? No. No. I grew up in the Bronx, and I said, the hell with it. I'm getting out of here. I'm going away. So I decided I'd take my horn, and my plan was to play, go as far as my money would take me, use my horn, make a little bit more, move a little further, 
and worked my way to California that way. And I, I did that as far as uh, Chicago, stopped in Philadelphia and Cincinnati, Detroit, got to Chicago. There there was a guy that was going to Minnesota, and then I got here and met a woman and wound up playing at the old Blue Note. Can you remember where that was located? Yeah, it was on 11th and Lindale, right where the freeway is, right? Consequently, you know, as, as a result of getting that gig at the Blue Note, I wound up meeting a whole lot of other musicians. Oh, sure. You know, I remember Kenny Horse coming in, you know, and of course Morris Wilson. Um, ah, rest his soul. Yeah, Crazy Morris. Oh, and, yeah. And Walter Thornton, Gene Hubbard. Uh, Jerry Hubbard was just coming out. He, he hadn't really started to play yet, but he was coming out. Shirley Witherspoon, um, constantly at the Blue Note. Blue Note was so cool, Patty. I wish you could have been a part of that, man. It was really, really hip. I didn't meet Jerry really until about 70. In between being here and then 70, I wound up going to the penitentiary for my drug involvement. Um, back at that time, I, that was the thing to do. You had to be like Bird if you wanted to play like Bird and all that kind of stuff. So I got involved in drugs, um, went to jail, got out of jail, went back to New York, missed Minnesota jumped on the bus and came back out here. So I've been here ever since 1970. I've only left for a few months doing some tours with the Buddy Holly story. And I didn't even know who Buddy Holly was. I said, who the hell is Buddy Holly? Yeah. You know? Well, then I learned who he was and said, wow, you know, this, this dude wasn't no joke. He, <laughs> you know, it was quite serious. The tour lasted 39 weeks. 39 weeks? 39 weeks. Man. Yeah. But the money was good. But I'm sure the artist inside of you was begging to come out. And oh, start. yeah, I've got a chance Did to you? play a little bit. Okay, yeah. good. Especially when we'd go to some of the towns, if I'd go to different clubs and play around. And You guys must have become very close, 39 we very, weeks of very traveling tight. together like yeah, that. Yeah, we got very tight. How I'm fun. still in touch with most of them. Anyway. You're listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends with Dean Brewington. Smiling Billy, Jimmy Heath. Like most saxophone players that I know anyway, loved, revered, and admired Charlie Parker. And as much as I wish that I had a modicum of that talent, I don't. Ballads are more my thing. This next tune, I think, is one of the prettiest ballads I've ever heard. It's called A Weaver of Dreams. Thank you. 
Can we back up to the very beginning and talk a little bit about what you experienced when you were growing up? Both my parents uh, were big fans of blues, rhythm and blues. My mom and my stepdad took me to the Apollo Theater when I was four years old and uh, caught a musician named Louis Jordan and his timpani five. That was it. That was it. I, I saw the pretty shiny saxophone and all the people yelling and screaming and cheering. And, and I remember saying, that's what I'm going to do when I get big. So when I was nine years old, my mom got me a saxophone from the pawn shop. Sure. I started making noise around the house and... <laughs> And the neighbors screaming and yelling, you know. I started music lessons before junior high, but they didn't last very long because my mom couldn't afford it. I think they were only like 75 cents or something, but she only made 28 bucks a week. So, oh, I mean, you know, <laughs> 75 cents was a lot. So that didn't last long, but in junior high is where I really got started. to a very hip junior high school. It was uh, one of the best in the Bronx for music. Junior high school, 40. A lot of musicians came out of there. Uh, my best friend, Oliver Bina, whom uh, eventually came out here to play with me for a while, was a very good musician, very, very good musician. And at 17, he went to play with Jerry Mulligan right after Chet Baker. And, and I hooked up with him, and he and I would listen to records and try to copy Clifford Brown and... So you were copying people when you were 14 years old. Oh, yeah. Starting to emulate them. Oh, yeah. That's how I got into oh, the band. I was like, got it. <laughs> I heard something on the radio, some saxophone player playing My Blue Heaven, some version that was pretty popular, and I learned it. That was my audition piece for the band. I want to touch on these other aspects of Dean Brewington. You're an yeah. actor. You're a print ad model. <laughs> You've done commercials. Well, it all began, actually, with uh, print ad. I was, um, well, let's see, it had to be 30 years ago. A friend of mine was building a photography studio. He asked me if I'd help him clean it up. And he had a, a friend who was also a photographer 
The friend asked me if I'd pose for him, do some stills, and he'd pay me 75 bucks a shot. I said, well, yeah, man, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to turn that down. <laughs> so I did a few, and then a couple of them that were picked up that went uh, national, international. That's how I got involved in the modeling thing. Now, the, um, the film piece, now, that came about. Um, an agency had called me and said, Dean, I have a audition for old black man in a movie. And I says, well, thanks, you know, but I, I don't think I want to do it. He said, oh, okay. A couple of days later, same person gives me a call back and says, well, Dean, you know, the, they saw your picture and they really would like to have you do the part. I mean, you look like the person they want, blah, blah, blah. Uh, would you reconsider? And I said, well, you know, Lynn, um, I'll think about it, but, you know, it's not something I really want to do. Next day, she says, Dean, the audition is just a formality. They want you. And I said, all right, well, that, you know, how are you going to refuse? So it winds up, I'm doing this movie with Matt Dillon. And the name of it is? Factotum. Factotum. F-A-C-T-O-T-U-M. Factotum. Oh, my gosh. You look a little down in the mouth. You all right? I lost a woman. Yeah, well, you'll have others. Lose them too. Where do they go? Try this. Ain't no women on Skid Row. Thanks. They drink to forget their women. Yeah, they just drink. That was a scene from the movie featuring Dean Brewington and Matt Dillon called Factotum. And now back to the live concert with Dean Brewington. The last selection is an original composition. I've asked Patty to uh, join us here. And it's a piece called Gethsemane. I dropped out of high school at 17 and went into the service. Out of all places, they sent me to Alaska. Alaska was not a nice place to be at night. <laughs> but the fortunate thing about Alaska was I met a guy named Irv Williams. Well, like I said, I'm stationed in Alaska. And on the weekends, we'd go into town, into Anchorage. There was this club called uh, Cafe International. They had jam sessions on Saturday. There was an organ trio and this little short saxophone player was right. playing and invite all the service guys up to play. So I, I sat in with Irv Williams a couple of three times while up there. That was cool. And you both end up in Minneapolis. How interesting I, yeah, is that? Yeah, I came back to Minneapolis and a year or so later I'm walking up the street and there was a club on Hennepin. Irv was working there. It was real cold and I stopped inside to warm up and uh, I heard this guy saying something about, uh, well, when I was stationed in Alaska, well, when I heard that I looked around and I said, damn, I know that guy. You know, I couldn't figure out how I knew him, but I knew him, you know. So I walked over to him and I said, hey, man, I heard you say something about Alaska. And he said, yeah, I was up there in Alaska. And so then it dawned on me. I met this guy. How welcoming was New York for you as a musician? 
New York is welcoming the same way to everybody. It doesn't play favorites. Uh-huh. <laughs> I miss it to death. Okay. I do. I, I'd leave today if, you know, if I could afford to live there. But I miss it. Met some great cats, man. I'm still friends with Sonny Rollins. We've been tight for years. Tina Brooks and I lived blocks from one another. You know, we hung out. The Bronx was really cool. In my 10-block radius, there were musicians like Bobby Capers, who played with Mongo Santa Maria years ago. Oliver Beener, as I said, Tina Brook, Tito Puente, Elmo Hope, Thelonious Monk. No way. Yeah. Father, I pray, please lift this cup from my hand. Nevertheless, most of all, let your will be done. Please hear me, Father, tonight. My heart is heavy. Yet here on Gethsemane, let your will be done. While others sleep, take me in your arms to keep. Let this yoke from about me. My spirit to weep tears of blood Father, your son calls to you Just know that I'm tired of caring Weary of tearing Father, please, Abba, please Daddy, hear my Words of advice. <sighs> Words of advice. First off, don't do it if you ain't serious about it. And if you're passionate about it, don't let anything stop you. You are listening to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Our next jazz legend is vocalist Betty Palmer. She didn't begin her singing in Minneapolis, but when she finally arrived with her family, she answered an ad in the Minneapolis paper from a band looking for a singer. Betty has been featured in various musical groups in the Twin Cities, and through her work, she's rubbed elbows with many jazz greats. Jazz legend, Betty Palmer. Betty Palmer, come on out. Is she gorgeous? You know, it's fun because I've known Betty since I was, oh, in the earlier part of my career. Shh. That's about as safe as you can get. (laughs) Betty, you're not from here originally. Where are you from originally? Well, I was born in a small town called Chillicothe in Missouri, which is outside of Kansas City. All right. Kansas City, here I come. That's it. (laughs) That's right. And uh, what got you interested in music? Of course, church always is the beginning, at least for a number of uh, entertainers, and that's where I kind of got started with singing. And then I started listening to classic entertainers like Sarah Vaughn and Ella Fitzgerald and some of those ladies. And I thought, gee, I like the way they're doing that. Then there was another thing that really shoved me over the edge. There was a man named Duke Ellington that came into town. And he was going to be playing at a place called the Air Lane Ballroom. I wound up sitting on the piano bench beside him. 
And then he just leans over and he says, don't give up your dream. Oh, and, so that was and you my didn't. Dream. That's beautiful. So you're in the Twin Cities. How did you get here? Well, I came by car. <laughs> where, where, come on, you missed your ribs. <laughs> Actually, I had moved here. At, at one point, I was married. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> shortly thereafter, I read a newspaper. Get this, they wanted a chick singer. In those days, you could ask for a chick singer. And I went and auditioned the same day and was given the job. So, Betty, you've been singing, uh, you sang in a lot of pop bands, and you said you segued over into jazz because you loved it. It was kind of part of who you were. What's some of your favorite stuff to sing? Uh, well, of course, it was the Paramounts. Betty Palmer and the Paramounts uh, was the longest-running group, and then from thereafter, I kind of went out of the public, light, public eye and just started doing private work. A long time ago, they had a Radisson South, Mr. C's, and then, of course, we had the, um, it's now called Crooners, but before then, it was the Shorewood yes. Inn. I, play, I would play there, sing there three months in a row. Wouldn't have to carry any equipment out wow. or anything. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. But I also know you hobnob with some pretty big celebrities, too. And oh. you were just telling me some stories about being at the L.A. Jazz Festival and the Dakota. Yeah. And yeah, at the Dakota, when the Dakota was over in uh, Bandana Square, was it called? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Russell Malone, an excellent guitar player, Benny Green on keys, and Ray Brown, God rest his soul, he was an excellent bass player. I just really admired those guys, and once again, they kind of were inspiring to keep me going and never give up. Well, speaking of which, let's hear Betty Palmer sing, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, Betty. <laughs> string sitting on a rainbow got the string around my finger what a life what a world i'm in love i got a song that i sing and i can make the rainbow all i do is move my finger lucky me can you see it's because i was in love Life is a beautiful thing As long as I hold that string I'd be a silly so-and-so If I should ever let go But I'll never let it go I got the world on a string And I'm sitting on a rainbow String wrapped around my finger What a life, what a world you bet I'm in love I've got the world on a string And I'm sitting on a rainbow Got the string around my finger What a life, what a world I'm in love, oh, so in love, yeah I got a song that I sing And I can make the rain go All I do is pull my finger me, can you see? I'm in love. Life is a beautiful thing. As long as I hold that string, I'd be a silly so and so. 
If I had should ever let it go But I never let it go I got the world on a string And I'm sitting on a rainbow String wrapped around my finger What a life, what a world I'm in love, so in love What a world, what a life Yeah, what a world, what a life What a world, what a life You can bet your life I'm in You're listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends with Betty Palmer. It's very clear our love is here to stay. Not for a year, but forever and a day. The radio and telephone and movies that we know may just be passing fancies and may go. But oh my dear, our love is here to stay. Together we're going a long, long way. What gave you the idea to record Swings, the standards? Well, I just wanted to record what I have done from the time that I became a single person that needed to make extra money and finding that the music world afforded me the opportunity to raise my kids and to do exactly what I wanted to do, sing. When I decided that I wanted to record, I just did it. And you called Russ Peterson as your executive producer? I did. I asked him, I said, this is what I'd like to do. How do I do it? And he says, well, I'll help you. You ran into some mighty fun musicians here in the Twin Cities. I did. And I think the first one that I ran into that I just fell in love with his style Ruben Ristrom. Ruben really inspired me to venture even further in my abilities to perform and invited me to come up and sing a song. I didn't know what I was going to do. Of course, he asked me what key, and of course, I looked at him and thought, what's a key? He just kind of hit a note or two, and I would pop my eyes, and I'd think, that's the one. was probably like about uh, maybe 12. Uh, it was the days when um, black entertainers could not fly on an airplane. Uh, they would either have to drive or have their own bus. And of course, coming through my hometown was the great, great band leader, Duke Ellington. In those days, there was a club called the Airline Ballroom. On Saturday night, he played for the white population and then on Sunday night, he played for the black population. And my dad had taken me and one of my sisters out to this airline ballroom so that we could hear, because my father was a jazz lover. And as the night wore on, 
I got the opportunity to meet Duke Ellington, sit on the piano bench. That just kind of pushed me even more to do what I was interested in doing. The radio and the telephone and the movies that we know may just be passing fancy and we'll go. You're at the top of your game, Betty Palmer. You, What do you do to stay so on top of your game? I take each day at a time and say, what do I want to do? What has been good? What has been bad? How can I make it better? And uh, I pursue my life in that vein. Um, I feel like I'm in charge of me and I am responsible. So consequently, do all of those things that make you feel good, things that you know that you can be successful at, and don't give up. Just keep going. Now to take us back to where I'm from, Route 66. We're rolling now. I would say that this music thing is still gonna be with me for the rest of my life. Ah, if you ever plan to motor west, take, take the highway, I say it's my way and that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. Chicago, way out to L.A. More than 2,000 miles all along the way. Hey, get your kicks, I say, on Route 66. Now you just go through St. Louis, Joplin, Missouri, and Oklahoma City is mighty pretty. Mexico, Flagstaff, Arizona, and don't forget Monona, Kingston, Boston, and San Bernardino. Once you, you get hip to that kindly tip. Once you make that California trip, come on, I say, get your trips. Come on, get your 
Listening to Minnesota jazz legends, the Elders. George Avalos, our next Minnesota jazz legend, or Georgie as he was called growing up, was raised in St. Paul, Minnesota on the West Side. He has traveled the world as one of the most celebrated Twin Cities drummers. Although he worked in the Minneapolis and St. Paul area, he was best known for his work with one of the jazz world's finest vocalists, Billy Eckstein, Minnesota's own jazz legend, drummer, and vocalist, George Avalaz. Please help me welcome to the stage Mr. George Avalaz. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. I want the audience to get to know you. And you were born and raised in? St. Paul, on the west side. When you were growing up, did you have a lot of music in your life? Yes, I did. I started off by uh, dancing the Mexican hat dance with my sister, Chaya. And then from that, I started playing the saxophone. Well, actually, my uncle bought me a guitar, and that didn't suit me very well. So he bought me an alto saxophone. And I liked, but I ended up switching over to the drums, and that was my instrument for the rest of my life. And what age were you when you switched to the drums? Um, I was probably about 16. So I know that you had some fun, some success working in the Twin Cities. Who were you working with at a young age? Okay, well, the first gig that I had, there was a theater in the West Side called the New Ray Theater, and they brought in this Mexican movie star by the name of Tito Guidar. He showed me a few rhythms to play behind them and uh, got a nice write-up in the St. Paul Pioneer Press and they had a picture of me and him together on the front page. And from then on, I started playing with the Rangel family, which is a very talented family that taught Juanita Moran, who was originally a Rangel, and uh, she taught me how to do the Mexican hat dance with my sister. And then uh, when I started playing the drums, we got a band together called Los Siete Notas, the seven notes with Kiko, uh, Rangel and uh, Ruben Trejo, who, by the way, ended up being a well-known artist. Some of his stuff is in the Smithsonian Institute. And then from there, Cornbread Harris came around, and, and actually I went through with playing with Augie Garcia and, and Dave Carr, who really elevated my plan, who Dave, I'm sure everybody knows about. Yeah. Yeah. But then you eventually moved to Chicago. How many years, and who did you work with? I worked at the Key Club, south of the border, and I, that's where I first played with Billy Eckstein. And that's when he told me that he wanted to use me, but he didn't know when. And I thought he was just being nice. And then I moved to Chicago, and he came in there at a place called the Tradewinds. And uh, he said, come on, let's go. You were Billy Eckstein's drummer for how many years? Almost 10 years. Oh, my gosh. And you toured the world, right? Yes. Got to go to Japan, Hong Kong, Manila, Thailand, Formosa, and... Dave, I can't even remember a lot of the places that we've been to. And you hung out with a lot of cool cats. Yeah, I had a chance to record with uh, Billy when he was at Basin Street East in New York City with Quincy Jones, and Don Rickles was a comedian, and it was a great time, you know. I got a chance to uh, play with a lot of different big bands with Billy, Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Maynard Ferguson. and uh, Right here in the Twin Cities. And, and also there was a lot of comedians that Billy was hiring at the time that weren't pretty well known. 
we did the Apollo Theater, and it was like Red Fox and Quincy Jones and uh, Frida Payne. Richard Pryor was a comedian another year, and Nancy Russell another year. And so I uh, rubbed elbows with some really great talents. And then you came back here. I was actually working with Ruben Ristam for a long time and a singer by the name of Shirley Forward. I worked with Ruben for quite a while. And then uh, I formed my own band, Sue Drood and uh, Paul Ockrey and Dave Maslow. And then I got away from doing kind of like pop stuff and just started playing more and more jazz-oriented stuff and played a lot of the things that Kenny Horse did over the David Jones Locker. Oh, sure. Played with Sue Anderson and Mickey McLean at the David Jones Locker. And then I ended up getting my own band and playing a lot of the arrangements of Jim Morentic, who is also a St. Paul resident who's living in New York now. I was fortunate enough to record a couple of CDs. The first one was called Trick Bag. And the second one was called The Highest Mountain. The Highest Mountain is a tune that Clifford Jordan wrote, who I had the pleasure of working with while living in New York. That's beautiful. I used to visit all the very gay places. Those come with May places. Where one relaxes on the axis of the wheel of life. To get the feel of life From jazz and cocktails The girls I knew had sad and sullen gray faces With distinct traces That used to be there You could see where they'd been washed away by too many through the day Twelve o'clock tales Then you came along with your siren song To tempt me to madness I thought for a while that your poignant smile was tinged with the sadness of a great love for me. Ah, yes, I was wrong. Again, I was Probably six months out of the year, we'd go to Vegas, Reno, and then Lake Tahoe. We did a month in each place. And there was one time when Harry James was working opposite us, and Buddy Rich was playing drums with him. No kidding. And after hearing the band so many times, I knew the arrangements. And then Buddy got sick, so I signed up with the band. And uh, Oh, my. And I knew all of his stuff that I could do. I couldn't do it, half the things that he could do. Sure. You know. Harry was playing. He said, oh, really? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> You're talking Harry Sweets Edison. No, Harry James. Harry James. Yeah, okay. Harry James. But mentioning Harry Sweets Edison, when I was living in Chicago, we was playing at a place called Robert's Show Lounge. And Red Fox was a comedian downstairs. And Dick Gregory was the MC. Tom Basie was playing down there, and Sarah Vaughn was singing. And then I was working upstairs with Sweets Edison and Jimmy Forrest, who was the guy that wrote Night Train. Wow. 
But anyway, getting back to Billy, one of the greatest experiences, we traveled all over the world. Went to Japan, Hong Kong, Manila, Thailand, Formosa, and there's some other places that I can't even think of, you know. And then did the Apollo Theater, which was a really a great, no, okay. great, great experience. Burning inside my brain is mush Stifling for those who strive I'll live a lush life In some small dive And there I'll be While I rot With the rest Of those whose lives are lonely Record with Billy Eckstein? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. I did it with Quincy Jones and Billy Eckstein at Basin Street East. Quincy Jones had the big band, and when we was getting ready to record, Billy just yelled out, Georgie, get up there! You know, Ted Kennedy was in there. Diane Washington, she came in dragging her fur. She made an entrance like nobody would believe no it. <laughs> and uh, Elizabeth Taylor was in there. Don Rickles was a comedian. I'll tell you a funny story. He said something, as Don always did, about somebody's wife. And this guy didn't like it, so he went backstage and he punched him out. <laughs> Nobody so talked to my wife like that except me, you know. <laughs> but all the great people that was in there was really another world for me, coming from where I came from and what I've been through and stuff like that. You know, the, the sad part about it for me, the album came out, and on the back of the album it says, Personnel Unknown. Just broke my heart, you know. Oh, you've had some disappointments. Yeah. I was sad that they didn't put my name on the album, you yeah. know. Burning inside my brain Oh, romance is mush Stifling for those who strive I'll live a lush life In some small dive You're listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends with George Avalaz. Coming up in the Twin Cities, and I was playing with Dave Carpenter, Bob Davis. 
got lucky and started playing as a house drummer for some of the people that came in. I've worked with Ernestine Anderson. I love her. And uh, this is a long, long time ago. And then played at Herb's Bar. And uh, Jackie McLean came in, and I played with him down there. And then Red Garland came in. It was kind of funny. He didn't like his drummer, and he didn't have any drums, so I let him use my drums. And then uh, one night I came in, and he said, let Georgie play, you know. And I played, and everybody knew Red Garland stuff, Billy Bowie and all that stuff. Oh, sure. To make a long story short, he, he liked the way I played, and he wanted me to go with him. As fatal habit, the drummer that he originally hired ended up showing up the last day. It broke my heart, and it probably would have changed my life even more. Besides playing with all the people around the Twin City, Gary Berg and Jim Morentic, who did a lot of the arrangements for The Highest Mountain, my last CD, there was a lot of other people that I played with. Oh, Bobby Jackson, who had the extraordinaire. Yeah, that was kind of funny because he uh, brought in Alvin Jones and he had a flashlight for a spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> I worked on Irv Williams when he was a lot younger. <laughs> and then I came around again, and he's a little bit older, and so was I. And also with Percy Hughes out at the point. And then I moved to uh, Chicago, and uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, climb the ladder again. You know, you always start at the bottom, and then people get to know you, and they accept you and or don't accept you. I got to play with Andrew Hill, who was actually the one that sent for me. And then I got to play with uh, Johnny Hartman and uh, James Spalding and all the better people in Chicago. And then working with Billy, I did concerts with Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Maynard Ferguson and Quincy Jones. And besides meeting all the guys in the band and all that stuff, which was great. And playing with them afterwards, you know, like at sessions. When you say sessions, you're talking like after hour sessions. After hour session, right. And there was Eddie Lockjaw Davis, and Sonny Payne was playing with Count Bass at the time, and Paul Gonzalez was playing with Duke Ellington, and Cat Anderson, and all them. Boy, you can just pull up the images when you're talking about it, can't you? Yeah, yeah. I can see it on your face. Yeah. I'm going to play the tune entitled Dear Old Stockholm.
have any words of advice? Okay, well, practice. <laughs> practice, practice, practice. First, you learn your instrument. Once you learn the instrument, and then learn how to play what you can think, and then you end up learning how to play with your heart, which is probably the most important part. Having technique and all the fast notes doesn't mean anything if it's not coming from the heart and soul. It's got to be from there, otherwise it doesn't mean nothing. in your career when you do an overview? Well, one of the great moments was playing our music with Billy Eckstein and Tom Basie, and it was like playing on a cloud. I mean, the band played itself, and I couldn't believe that I'm sitting up there with Tom Basie and Billy Eckstein. It was just like a dream come true. I was very fortunate to cross paths with a lot of the great people. I look back on it, and I'm actually surprised at myself. You just really witnessed a lot of cool things, yeah, didn't you? Yes, yes. That's magic. See, people listening to this aren't going to even believe that you had that charmed of a life from West St. Paul. Yes. It's really a very magical story you have. Yes, and I'm proud of it. listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders, hosted and produced by Patty Peterson. Executive producer, Michelle Jansen. The featured musicians for the jazz legends are backed by the house band, Phil Aaron on piano, Gary Rayner on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Miles Hansen at Creation Audio. Sound editor is Miles Hansen. Minnesota Jazz Legends The Elders is funded by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This is a production of KBEM Radio. Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. I'm your host, Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we are very lucky to have many jazz musicians and singers who have performed for most of their lives and some right into their 80s. It's always amazing to hear their stories, and in this show, we will hear from several legends from previously recorded interviews and live concert performances. We will learn about their start in the jazz scene, their high points and challenges, and finally, their continued passion for this art form. Our musical guests are familiar to many, and we hope by the end of this broadcast, you will know them even better. I invite you to sit back and listen to our Minnesota jazz legends, George Avalos, Dean Brewington, Betty Palmer, Steve Blondes, Carrie Thomas, Bill Evans, and Charlie DeVore. 
The featured musicians for the jazz legends are backed by the house band. Phil Aaron on piano, Gary Rayner on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. This show is brought to you by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and KBEM. Guitarist Steve Blondes is our next Minnesota jazz legend. He grew up in a musical household where his father, Harry Blondes, was a well-known trumpet player in the Twin Cities. Steve picked up the guitar at an early age and was groomed on the bandstand under the tutelage of his father. He has recorded with many artists, including Mr. Smooth, Irv Williams, and his own group, Soul Cafe. Steve joined us at the Minnesota History Center for the live Jazz Legends concert. Steve Blondes, everybody. I know you grew up in a household full of music, didn't you? I did. In fact, I know that my father and your father knew each other, were friends, and made records together. That's true. That's right. And so uh, Harry was a Dixieland uh, clarinet player and saxophone player and had his own groups uh, during that Dixieland revival of the early 50s. And my mother was a piano-playing woman with a bunch of sheet music in the piano bench. And so I heard a lot of tunes under her tutelage as well and learned to sing harmony with her at the piano bench. What kind of music was that? Well, those were tunes from the 20s and 30s, you know, standards and those good old tunes, you know. So you first got interested in actually doing something with music at what age? Oh, gosh, I was dilly around, you know, probably when I was six or seven at the family piano. And then an aunt gave me a ukulele when I was 10. Was that what got you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I heard a little funny story about your dad and you wanting to get into music. By any chance, did he want you to play trumpet? No, he never really said he wanted me to play anything particular. He sort of supported me on piano for a while and then guitar. I thought you were going to say something he said to me years after that. He said, whatever you do, don't go into this business. This is not a way to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was basically right. <laughs> I thought he also said if you play guitar. Oh, yes. Don't play any of that crappy rock and roll, he said. right? Yeah, yeah. Did you? And I actually didn't. I didn't. I was a musical snob. I was a jazz lover, and I stayed away from all that pop music for a long time, which cost me a lot of work over the years. <laughs> Talk about some of the groups you may have played in as a younger person. I thought I'd tell you a story about an, an early job I had. So I started playing as a teenager with friends and was in a couple of little bands. My father kept saying, you know, if you join the union, I'll hire you. Because in those days, that mattered yes. to be a member of the union, right? You know. And so eventually, I think it was 19 when I joined the union, and he had a regular Sunday gig, and suddenly I was on the band. It never dawned on me until years later that, you know, he couldn't have just added another person to the band. And he must have paid me out of his pocket. I never thought about that before. Really? Yeah. And the guys in the band were really wonderful. I mean, the boss's kid comes on the band and you think, oh, wow, you know, this is, what's this going to be like? So night after night, I'm sitting there literally learning the tunes on the bandstand listening to everybody play, learning this tune, learning that tune. By the time I've been there for a while, I learned, I learned the tunes that they played. And that's really part of this music. You know, there's, there's a point at which most of us were invited on the bandstand yes. by the elders right. to join the band and be part of the whole scene. And it's that kind of a passing on from one generation to another that happens. I know that you've done some broadcasting, too, with Jazz 88. I did. Michelle Jansen and I both seemingly came up with a similar idea at the same time. And so we got together and put together a program which was on the air for about four or five years. It was called Jazz and the Spirit. We did a series of interviews with musicians, and basically the conversation was all about what's the connection between your music and your spirituality? 
And it turned out that there was lots of people had to say about that, given the opportunity. And we interviewed a bunch of folks from the Twin Cities, you twice, I think. I believe so. Uh, Carrie Thomas, who's going to be playing later, well, was one of our interviewees. Beautiful. And some national people, and it was a, it was a great experience. Oh, that's so cool. So I know you've been um, a guitarist on many sessions, on many CDs. I know you're working, and one of my favorites is Friday at the Dakota with none other than... Irv Williams. So I've been... Uh, <laughs> thanks. Yep. It's been uh, it's been my joy to have uh, a chance to play with Irv every Friday at the Dakota. Irv is three months shy of his 98th birthday, so this is a this is a true legend. I'm like like the son of the legend, sort of so to speak. And Irv is still playing beautifully, by the way. Yeah, he's still doing yeah. it. It's sort of funny to me because over the years I've actually rarely worked a steady gig in a jazz club, but now I've got one, and my meal ticket is 97 years old. So. Now that's a story. There you go. Speaking of stories, you want to play a little bit? I will. Steve Bonds, everybody. I wanted to play this tune because for about 25 years, I worked, oh, I did hundreds of gigs, I suppose, with a wonderful musician who's now not with us any longer. Bruce Allard was his name. He's a violin player and a trumpet player. And we did lots of strolling jobs, walking around shopping centers and strolling from table to table at dinners. And Bruce always, always, always started the gig with the same tune. It was just a way of getting into the job. We didn't have to worry about what the first tune was. He always called the same tune. So we're going to play Watch What Happens. Thank you. 
are listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends with Steve Blondes. Thank you. Like many young jazz musicians, certainly in my day, before there was jazz studies programs, we mostly learned our craft by listening to other people play it. Bought a lot of records, listened to lots of performances, tried to play what we heard. It wasn't a quick and easy process. Those are the days of LPs, and so when we were trying to learn tunes, you had to pick the needle up and put it down, pick the needle up and put it down, pick the needle up. And those records are just crap right now. I mean, they just completely... One of my important early influences was a guitar player named Barney Kessel, and I loved his music, and I bought all his records, and I tried to learn his songs. And I'm going to play for you a Barney Kessel arrangement of a beautiful Duke Ellington tune called Prelude to a Kiss that I learned, oh my God, I learned this 60 years ago, I suppose. <laughs> crucible out of which I grew in this family, besides there being this music stuff, there was this religious stuff as well. So I had two religious strands in my, in my family. I had this Jewish father and a Catholic mother. And in my family, the way that played out was my mother was the more religious person, but was committed to raising her three sons as Jews. So I had this interesting Jewish experience without a Jewish mother, which is really an important piece to have if you're going to be culturally Jewish. And religion just became a thing. I was aware of the differences and the questions about, well, does it matter? And is one right and one wrong and all that kind of stuff. Eventually, I met and married my first wife, who grew up in the Methodist church. I started going to church with her. We were married in that church. I eventually was baptized in that church. The following year in 1966, we had this musical event that happened where Paul Horn, Paul Horn was a uh, alto saxophone post-bebop player, he had made a recording of something called uh, Suite on the Mass Text. It wasn't exactly a jazz mass. Lalo Schifrin, a movie composer, TV composer, had decided to use the mass as an inspiration to write an extended piece, even though it was just a, a composition for him. It won the Grammy as the best jazz recording in 1965. It was the first time I'd really heard the way that jazz could be part of this religious experience. was the first of a three-year series. The second year, a guy came whose name is Ed Summerlin, completely unknown to most people. Ed turned out to be one of the pioneers in this area of jazz and liturgy. The third year, Duke Ellington came to my church and did one of his sacred concerts. 
What church are we talking about? This is Hennepin Avenue United Methodist Church. So 1968, Ellington's been doing these things for about a little over two years. He comes with a full band, rehearses with the choir, does this concert at the church. Now you would think that, that that would have led immediately to something else, but it was 20 years after that before I did the first jazz thing I had ever done in church. It was at that church. It took us 20 years to actually do a service, not a concert, but a service, because there still was this feeling that it was somehow out of place. It was somehow not sacred, you know? And so the musical director who was there during those early years, he and I had become good friends by then. So we figured out finally that we could create a service for Shrove Tuesday, Mardi Gras Tuesday. There's a jazz connection there. Let me ask you something. Yeah. Are we talking about creating the jazz service using standards, or were you putting jazz rhythms and harmonies to established prayers? So, you know, we're doing this from scratch. So I'm not Lalo Schiffer, and I'm not going to compose a whole thing. The concept was we wanted the people to participate. We didn't want it to just be a concert. We wanted people to be able to sing. Well, okay. people are going to sing, there has to be stuff that they know. So I just decided, I just started looking through the hymnal, looking for tunes that I could jazz up a little bit. I did compose a psalm refrain, so I had one little original piece in there. So this was you know, the Tuesday night before Ash Wednesday. I mean, that's, where mm -hmm. it, that's right. what it is in the church calendar, right? And um, we did it first in 1988. We did it again in 1989. We did it again in 1990. And each year, it got bigger and bigger. guys. This is just a favorite tune of mine. I love the groove and it's called Love for Sale. is that we use the word inspiration, you know, to talk about making art. You know, where does the art come from? It's inspired. Well, in that word inspiration, of course, is that word spirit. So my belief is that it all comes from the same source. There's one source, whatever you want to call it or however you want to imagine it. And so to me, the church shouldn't just commission artists to render their message using their art form, to paint a painting of this story, or make a composition about this text. The church should invite artists to come and simply present their art, because the art itself 
is a revelation of spirit. That's my belief. Honest opinion is that the institution was going to have to loosen its grip for that to be able to happen in a big way. And it may happen because the younger generation is not that interested in what the institution has been doing all these years. So if the institution begins to kind of wither and, and die away and I mean, it'll go fighting and kicking, kicking and screaming. But spirit is not dependent on institutions. Spirit is going to well up because it's there. And if the institution can't find a way to embrace and embody it, it'll just find some other form. And it doesn't matter whether it's in the church or not. If people are finding spiritual energy from music or dance or, or poetry or drama or you know, the, the, arts will, the arts will continue. By this time, I'm playing a lot with Bruce Allard and some with Cliff Brunzel, and I got to be part of a lot of strolling violin trios. You know, all the violin players at one time or another hired me to, to walk around with them and, and do strolling gigs. And I did scores and scores and scores of these things, and they were amazing, fun. Time went by fast because you were taking requests. You never knew what the next table was going to ask you for. So the game is, you go to the table, you say, what can we play for you? And then they would mention a tune, and hopefully you could play it. So this one time we were playing, I remember this very clear, it was me and Bruce and Gordy Johnson. We were standing at this table at the Wyzetta Country Club, and this guy asked for a tune, and he prefaces it by saying, I've been asking people to play this tune for 30 years, and nobody knows it. So Bruce says, well, can you sing any of it? Can you hum any of it? So the guy actually did. He sort of sang or hummed, Bruce leaned in, and he got some stem of melody from this. Based on that, Bruce starts playing, I'm doing air quotes here, he starts playing yes, this tune yes. just out of thin air. So he's playing this melody, and Gordy's listening, and I'm listening, and we're trying to figure out chords, and we're kind of accompanying the thing. All Bruce had was like eight measures of this, maybe. So he plays that as the A section, plays it again, gets to the bridge, completely makes up a bridge, which Gordy and I followed quite a lot. You know, we've done sure. we don't want to do this. We get done with the song, the guy is weeping. He is so moved that someone has actually been able to play this song of his that no one has been able to play for him. Oh my gosh. And I thought, now that's amazing. That we could actually do that in a convincing way. It was jazz in the broadest sense because we were improvising out of whole cloth this song that none of us knew. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
You are listening to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Pianist Kerry Thomas has embraced many art forms in his life. Although piano is his primary instrument, he has written close vocal harmonies, he's an artist, a poet, and has even authored a book. He embraces all that he sees and experiences and puts it into these art forms. He sees his mission as one of helping to make our planet better by continuing to create. Minnesota jazz legend, Kerry Thomas. The more I got to know him, the more I fell in love with this man. He's inspirational, he's spiritual. Hello, Kerry Thomas. Oh, you're making me tickle. Yeah? (laughs) You are very inspirational. When I asked you, okay, what gave you your start in music? What was the first thing you did? Tell them what you told me. Fitzgerald, Pennsylvania, Wiley Avenue, and it was an extended neighborhood environment, uh, but it was full of a lot of people that saw each other all during the uh, breathing day and night of our uh, community. And it was just lovely. It was lovely. There was always somebody there to help you out or point you on the right way. And that informed you as to how to do the same thing or at least to continue to work on it. And you came to the Twin Cities when? Uh, in 1972. And who were you playing with back then? Uh, let see. When I came here, I ran into Jimmy Wallace and Gene Adams and Sam Favors. So not only have you done music, but you've done art? Yeah, I've always loved color and writing and making food, cooking. and. Haven't you had something like 37 residencies? Yeah. That's just beautiful. You're going to play some original pieces for us today. Yes. And uh, the first piece? Uh, the first piece is Steps, and it's dedicated to my mentor in faith, a gentleman named Daisaku Ikeda. I'm a Buddhist STI, Soka Gakkai, and he is like our mentor. And you're bringing a friend up to the stage, too. Oh, yes. That friend is Mr. Donald Washington. Carrie was paralyzed for two years. Yes. And he came back, and he's so passionate about the arts. It probably is what healed you, I would say, right? Yes. And you've taught yourself to play in a new way, and it's all from your heart.
Was there music in your home? What influenced you initially to take music into your life? Everything, when I think about it. The uh, walk from home to school, I'd hear this mixture of voices in the morning, the old horseshoes clicking on the cobblestone streets as the Huckster wagons would move through Wiley Avenue saying, get your oranges, get your fresh bananas. It would wake me up. grandmother, they all played the, the lovely church music. It was the other side of going to school and all, you know, yeah. I was hearing a lot of the jazz. I was hearing a lot of Charlie Parker, the dominoes, the clovers. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember this guitar player's name. He was right in my neighborhood. Not George Benson. Yeah, Georgie Benson. Yes, Georgie was there. He'd walk through the early evenings in the summertime, and we'd all meet at this corner and just sit and, and stand and listen to him. And the ladies would just hold their chins and say, mm, 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 that boy gonna be something. Men of the neighborhood would get together a lot of times on Sundays and just discuss the situation of the neighborhood. What's going on? So there'd be these meetings, and I would be kind of the entertainment side. I would just start playing the piano, rambling. So you were writing way back when you were a kid. Well, I thought it was just creating the things that sure. came out. Sure, improvising, mm -hmm. sure. When did you say, hey, I want to do more of this? I love music. When did that occur for you? I, I felt it always was interesting to me. Because I felt the same way about painting, drawing, and I felt the same way about poetry and a lot of different other art forms. And I just thought, well, they're just things I like. You know, I never thought of, I'm going to concentrate on that and I'm going to be the greatest blank, blank, blank there ever was, you know. They were just like that to me. They were like breathing. Listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends with Carrie Thomas. When you got to high school years, were you playing music then? In high school and in grammar school, I was singing. I would do rock groups. Wow, did you think yeah. that would be your direction in life? Again, it was something that came through me. 
As you went on in school, you started to study jazz vocal harmonies. There was an article that mentioned you could write vocal harmonies and for freshmen. freshmen. And for freshmen. where did you study that? In Chicago. I 1954, see. We, we so you moved and you graduated from Chicago. What happened in your college years? I just continued to play music. You were able to apply what you've learned already, and then you start living life. Do you get a job, or are you able to make a living at music? I wasn't able to make a living at music. I got a job. I got into the Army. I was stationed in Germany. What year? Oh, 1960 to 1962. Was there unrest in the world, or were you just serving? It was right time? during that Bay of the Pigs time. Uh, yeah. um, anything happened during that time that was influential to you? Every day. I was able to, to go to different countries, the Netherlands. and. Were you able to go hear music? That's what I mean. Okay, oh, I, I went, see. I made sure I could. You got to hear music. Uh, Did you play any music? Yes, trying this out here and trying something out. So when you got out of the Army, 1962, where do you come back to? Chicago. Oh. I went to Roosevelt University. You ended up in the Twin Cities. I we, came here in uh, 1972. You must have had a reason to come up here. What was your reason? Expand my life, I guess one yes. would say, yeah. My then wife was from Minnesota. It felt like a smooth kind of a thing to do. So you came up to Minnesota. How welcoming was our musical community to you? I feel that, that you can penetrate the membrane of, of the music. That, that, if, that In order to, to be there, one has to himself, or themselves, I should say, penetrate that rather than wonder what they, how the people feel about you. You have to do that. Right. Uh, and so they, they were pretty welcoming. How did you approach the music scene? I would not wait for it to come to me. I would go to it. And if, if I liked what I heard, they would be the ones who would draw me to them. Did you have a career in music here in the Twin Cities? I worked at the uh, Metropolitan Cultural Arts Center, and I used to work there with the kids, the Willard School kids. I also hear you're a poet. How did you get into that? Sitting around and looking at things around me. I always want to engage the things around me, even if they aren't breathing in and breathing out, you know. You know, I also yeah. read that you're very spiritual. You feel like there's a lot of spirit in all of the things that yeah. you do. The vernacular about who Carrie Thomas is oh, thank you, is one I'm... who brings spirit into everything he's touching. Oh. So there you go. Because sometimes I, I'm so I'm thankful. So blessed. I had this crazy illness called Guillain-Barre syndrome, a, a central nerve thing. It whacked me around quite a bit, but it didn't stop me from reaching what I reaching for and grabbing onto the things that I need to continue doing what I'm doing here. When you mm. contracted this, were you paralyzed for two well, years? Like that, yeah. And yeah, so yeah. here you are, an mm. instrumentalist, a vocal writer. How did you keep going? Like that, just. Keep going. If we all continue to seek this stream of connectedness to each other, we're doing it. We're helping, we're seeking, we're giving, we're being, we're, we are. And it's that connection that keeps us moving along. I'm a Nietzsche and Buddhist, and I chant, Nam Yo Renge Kyo. And that has been so helpful for me.
are you still writing music? Yes, I am. It's always going on. I feel that this is part of my destiny, that I'm, one, I'm an art person, and I do, I write and play and, you know, all of this stuff. That's yes. what I do. I feel that I, I'm to do this, to help make this thing a little better, making this shiny orb called Earth, you know, a little better. Tell us how Jan Boré affected you. How are you today? Oh, boy, it's hard to explain. I have some physical handicaps, like uh, my fingers. I can't play the scales with the celerity that I used to. But uh, my writing has continued to expand, and I'd like to hope my perception and, and connection to those around me and, and, and the world has expanded. So I just wanted people who are listening to this interview mm. to know that there was some things that occurred with this disease that you had to work through and you still work through, but yes. you've improvised, you still play piano. That's you right. have had to improvise your hands in order to get the melody out that you hear inside of you, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think it's inspirational is my word for you. It's really important for me to feature somebody like you because we have incredible musicians who have really pounded the pavement. Yeah. You've done that. Yeah. You've expressed your art. Mm. You're unique, and people honor and respect your uniqueness. If you were to yeah, talk to kids, uh, do you have any advice for them? Put one foot in front of the other and go. You are listening to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Bill Evans and Charlie DeVore are two of the leading Dixieland authorities in Minnesota. They met in the late 1950s and have played music together ever since. Bill has the New Orleans Jazz Band, which plays all over the Twin Cities and in New Orleans. They are well-versed in the history of Dixieland jazz and the evolution of the supper club and nightclub, the Jazz Emporium in Mendota, Minnesota. They joined me for a very fun interview at Jazz 88. Time for another very fun interview for the Minnesota Jazz Legends. And this time I've invited in a couple of guys who uh, are going to talk to me and actually teach me about a style of music that I've heard of, I've listened to, but I really don't know much about the history here in our state of Minnesota. Charlie DeVore is in studio as well as Bill Evans. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be anywhere at this stage in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, I'll start with you. You have been in town playing. You play what instrument for starters? 
Well, the trombone and the string bass, primarily. You've been playing this style of music your whole life, or how did you get started in it? Well, in grade school, I started on the piano, and then I started listening to traditional jazz. I knew it only as Dixieland at that time, and later I learned to know the difference between Dixieland and New Orleans style and various other styles of traditional jazz. So then I uh, started playing the trombone, and eventually I ran into members of the Hall Brothers Jazz Band in the late 50s, and... I picked up a string bass and started playing with the band. They needed a bass player, so that's kind of how I got started. And Charlie, what about you? Well, my dad was a musician, Dave DeVore, and many of the musicians knew him quite well because he played in the 30s in the Twin Cities, and he was a bass player and a tuba player. And his best friend was Red Maddock, one of the funniest guys alive and a fantastic drummer, and they were best friends. My mom and dad got divorced when I was about four years old. So as a teenager, my mother's brother was also a trumpet player, and he had all these records with wonderful old names like Bix and his gang. And Bix Beiderbeck was a legendary figure from the 20s. So I got really hooked by listening to those records, and there was a few books up there. So that's what got me started. And then Doc Evans had a radio program. It came on every Friday night from Faribault down in Northfield, the Faribault radio station. It was called A Session for Moldy Figs. <laughs> well, that term came about really out of New York between the beboppers and the traditional guys, and the beboppers called us traditional guys moldy figs. As far as Dixieland and that kind of music, I think there was a club in Mendota. Uh, it was a roadhouse, uh, Mitch's. And in the late 30s, had a, a jazz band. Doc Evans played in it. They called themselves, I believe, the Mendota Buzzards. And it was through Doc Evans' records that I was introduced to jazz. And then finally, in my late teens, got a chance to hear Doc's band out at the Point Supper Club in Golden Valley. And that would have been about the fall of 1950. So you heard them, but were you officially playing by then? And what is your instrument? Uh, my instrument has been the cornet. And uh, I was inspired uh, by the records of uh, Bix Beiderbeck. And then I found out about some of the other pioneers of jazz through my uncle's book collection. King Oliver, uh, Young Louis Armstrong, they all played cornet. So I said, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Unfortunately, my mother had a bad experience being married and a musician. I was really discouraged from getting involved at all. <laughs> I wanted to play the cornet and uh, didn't have any luck. So I remember in the eighth grade, I did play the alto horn for a while, but because I couldn't read music and couldn't name the notes and staff, I got the axe there. But they let me sing in the choir because there was hardly any guys singing. Uh, <laughs> So I went to business school out of high school. I graduated in 1951, and my mom says, you know, you finished the business school. You can't live here anymore. What are you going to do? And I said, uh, well, I'm going to join the Navy. Maybe they'll send me to New Orleans. Well, that's exactly what happened. No kidding. Yeah, I really got lucky. And it took a while, but I met my mentor, a jazz historian by the name of William Russell, through meeting him, I got a chance to meet all the pioneers of African-American music. And I met most of the musicians that went into the groups that started uh, Preservation Hall in 1961. So that was the epiphany for me, meeting all those guys. And Bill Russell had me get in touch with a teacher over in Algiers on the other side of New Orleans. His name was Manuel Manetta, and he had played piano in the Red Light District 
and played in the brass band with Kid Ory, Louis Armstrong, Johnny Dodds, and King Oliver. It was wonderful taking lessons from him. The lessons would last about 15 minutes, and then he'd tell me uh, all of the stories as he was growing up in New Orleans. So that was really my indoctrination. And once I met all those musicians, and thanks to Bill Russell, I said, well, I know I started so late. I'll never be able to make a living playing music, but this is what I love to do. I thought, well, maybe someday I'll get a day gig and I can play this kind of music at night. And that's pretty much the way my life has been. Day gigs to put bread on the table and then finding guys like Bill Evans. Met Bill in the 1958 Dick Ramberg's living room. Remember that, Bill? Sure do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's quite a history. DeVore is in studio as well as Bill Evans. Bill, did you have a similar upbringing? Well, I started on piano during grade school, and I uh, I had a couple of friends, and we'd hang around our living rooms and play the piano and just learn stuff. And then we ran into a couple of guys about 1956, 57, Dick Ramberg, and about three other guys, George Metcalf, who died when he was 19 years old, unfortunately. He was a excellent musician. We had a band. We decided to call ourselves the Mississippi Counts. And Dick Ramberger was in that band. And then, as Charlie mentioned, we ran into him over at Dick Ramberg's house. And he was looking for some musicians to hook up with. And one thing led to another. And Charlie actually was playing a little bass fiddle back then, if yeah. I remember. Yeah, Bill always <laughs> described that as a vile experience. <laughs> <laughs> 
Where were you working? Oh, just parties. But there was one club we actually did play at, the Black Cat Saloon, which is no longer there, 98th and Cedar. Anyhow, we ran into uh, Stan and Russ Hall. Charlie knew them through Jim McDonald, who had a record store in South Minneapolis. Called the Dixieland Record Heaven. Yes, wonderful person. He was kind of a catalyst. He would bring different musicians together that had similar likes. Then, uh, well, the Hall Brothers Band was starting up, and I was playing trombone in this previous band, and then uh, they said, well, why don't you learn to play the string bass? I said, okay, sure. So it was all on-the-job training kind of stuff. So you guys have quite a connection, and you finally circled around and started working together. Now, I want some clarification. In Mendota, that was really quite a mecca for more New Orleans jazz or Dixieland. There was Mitch's, and uh, I was told that the freeway took that club away. That's right. But then there was an emporium of jazz in Mendota as well as New Orleans. That was our place, yeah. We collectively purchased the old bow and arrow and fixed it up and ran it as the Emporium of Jazz for a couple of decades. That building had been called the bow and arrow, but before then, uh, Doc Evans had opened up that spot and called it the Rampart Street Club, and that was in July of 58, and that ran to 1961. And then our drummer, Doggy Berg, every time we played different jobs, he'd always introduce wherever we were playing as the Emporium of Jazz and so forth and so on. So that's how we, we got the name. Charlie DeVore and Bill Evans are my in-studio guests. We're talking about their experience here in our Twin Cities and what their life was like as musicians. How many nights a week did they have music? Well, when we first opened in 66, we were really ambitious. We started playing on Wednesday night, Wednesday through Sunday. And then suddenly we realized that on uh, Wednesday, Thursdays, uh, the band would outnumber the audience. At that point, we had a six-piece band. So we finally switched to just playing Fridays and Saturdays. And then a few years later, thanks to Dave Dell, we expanded the property so that we could have a restaurant. That's how the Mariner restaurant. It was originally the hot fish shop. They had come up from Winona. And once that happened, we had a Sunday brunch with a little trio wandering around entertaining people at their tables. That's kind of what it was, Fridays, Saturdays, and then the Sunday brunch. Well, that was really a, a privilege. Were you also doing other styles of music? Oh, yeah. We played in other groups. And then, of course, later, Butch Thompson joined the band after he got out of the Army. And then Prairie Home Companion Show started in the late 70s. Uh, Red Maddock on drums and myself on bass, we became part of the Butch Thompson Trio, and that lasted for about, what, six years on the on the show. So that was a lot of fun. Then we traveled around the country quite a bit, so in the mid to late 80s, I wasn't playing regularly with the Hall Brothers Band because I was traveling with Butch, and I left the trio, and we had a little band going called uh, <laughs> the Godfrey Daniel Jazz Band, an old W.C. Fields term. So Dave Braun played with us and, and Dave Faison on string bass. And, and and so we worked that band for a while and we were playing at, um, oh, Fabulous Ferns on Selby and Western in the very early 90s. And then then we went to Chang O'Hara's with that band. At that time, we were calling it the Bill Evans New Orleans Jazz Band. Went to Chang O'Hara's and lasted for nine years. You are listening to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. I wanted to ask you the difference between New Orleans jazz and Dixieland. Well, uh, the, the term Dixieland came from the first band to record jazz, and that was the original Dixieland Jazz Band in 1917. So that term 
kind of stuck with bands that had the same setup. It was a five-piece band with clarinet, trombone, cornet, drums, and piano sometimes. So that's kind of where the term Dixieland came from. Uh, my friend Bill Russell took me to hear uh, the George Lewis band. I had some of their records, and that was a seven-piece uh, African-American band. And I got a chance to hear them live uh, playing in a couple of places uh, on, uh, in the French Quarter. And thanks to Bill, I got a chance to meet the musicians. And then there was wonderful brass bands playing in the streets of New Orleans, and they were all African-American too. So that was my real introduction to uh, a different way of playing early jazz. The thing that appealed to me was this wonderful New Orleans rhythm and beat. And I heard it with those bands, and I didn't hear it with some of the uh, white Dixieland bands. So I always made a distinction between playing early jazz that way as opposed to the white Dixieland bands. The, the Dixieland bands are very, very good in harmony in that the African-American bands concentrated more on the sound they were getting on their instruments and mm, partic- particularly okay. the rhythm. So it was the difference in the rhythm. If you closed yeah. your eyes, could you tell the difference? Oh, yeah. Let, let me uh, add something. When they met Charlie, he brought some records over to Dick Ramberg's house to show us what kind of music that he liked, and this was foreign to me at the time, the early New Orleans style. I considered primitive because they weren't necessarily in tune all the time and playing a lot of wrong chords, and it really hurts my ear. <laughs> and I said, gee, Charlie, this is really good stuff. You know, it's really nice, you know. And then it finally dawned on me what was happening. Each one of those musicians was using their instrument as a rhythm instrument, and they had a totally different perspective from that point on. So I gained a totally different appreciation for that kind of music based on the honesty of it. No frills, nothing, just good, hard-driving music, you know, wonderful stuff. We wanted to bring up all those New Orleans musicians to play. A lot of them had already been playing down at Preservation Hall. So our very first guest, it was in April of 1966, was George Lewis himself on the clarinet and Kid Thomas's trombone player, Lewis Nelson. And from that point on, we brought up 258 musicians playing essentially traditional jazz, not all New Orleans, some of it was uh, more New York style. And then there were individual bands, too. That New Orleans style of playing was not that popular in the United States, but it certainly was in uh, in Europe and Japan. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, there was, a, there was a Japanese band from Osaka, Japan. They were touring America. And they were called the New Orleans Rascals. They loved the George Lewis sound, so they had uh, put together a band that sounded exactly like George Lewis, and they they played at our club in July of 66.
How fun. In studio is Bill Evans and Charlie DeVore, and we're talking about traditional New Orleans jazz. So, Bill, <laughs> musically, what, what was a high point for you? Well, I'll tell you, whenever I'm talking to another musician that plays a string bass, I have to tell them this story because this really knocks me out. One time, Butch Thompson and Hal Smith and I were playing a concert at the Detroit Music Hall. And whenever possible, we would borrow or rent a bass. Well, we rented a bass, and it was a 7 8 size bass. Cost us 75 bucks to rent. And this bass was built in 1802. And everything was magic. Everything I touched, it just came out perfect. And I found out that this particular bass was the property of the Count Basie Band from 1947 till 1954. And, wow, what an instrument that was. So that was one of my high points. I bet. And, Charlie, what about you? Oh, the highlight for me was, of course, hearing all the musicians down in New Orleans. I was obsessed. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being a part of this. Well, Patty, thank 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 you. you. Thank Thank you you very much. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders, hosted and produced by Patty Peterson. Executive producer, Michelle Jansen. The featured musicians for the jazz legends are backed by the house band, Phil Aaron on piano, Gary Rayner on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Miles Hansen at Creation Audio. Sound editor is Miles Hansen. Special thanks to Wendy Freshman at the Minnesota Historical Society and to the staff of the Minnesota History Center 3M Auditorium for their collaboration on this project. Minnesota Jazz Legends The Elders is funded by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This is a production of KBEM Radio.